With me, please, Philippians chapter 1. Our reading this morning in verse 19. Philippians 1 and verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Let's pray. Father, again we ask this, or this morning that you would prepare our hearts even in this very moment, that we would receive the truth of your word, and that as Christ is proclaimed, as Paul has explained in this passage of his epistle to the church at Philippi, May we receive this truth, Father, of your purpose and your plan unfolding, all that it might be unto your glory, as Paul so clearly declares in this passage. Father, we ask that hearts would be receptive, eyes would be opened, ears would hear the truth of the revealed Christ from the Word of God this day. And Father, may we do so with a desire to not just learn, not just to gain knowledge, but more importantly, that you would use your word to spiritually mature us in the faith and knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for who you are and for all that you have done and your faithfulness to yourself, to your word, to your purposes. And so, Father, may we, as your people, understand the tremendous privilege it is that you would involve us in your work, that you would not only redeem us, but that you would allow us the privilege to serve and to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may we do so as faithful stewards. May we do so as a people that understand the privilege of what it is, not only again to be your child, but to be your ambassadors, to be your people, to be your salt and life in a world that is full of darkness. So may we do so faithfully, and may you receive all the glory, and may Christ be magnified in and through us as you perform your eternal work and purpose in this life which you have given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. As I have and will continue to do so, I've reminded you within the study of this first chapter of Philippians that Paul sets the tone for the emphasis of this epistle in verse 10 specifically of this first chapter. And this is important because as we've now been in our study of Philippians for many weeks, uh, we, we need to be mindful that Paul, as he writes his epistles, he always provides us the thesis of the reason he is writing, the thesis statement is provided within the first chapter of his, epistle, of his epistles in most cases. And in this case, it's in chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, specifically verse 10, where we read, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Within the third chapter of Philippians, Paul demonstrates a personal example, as we have seen over the past many weeks, 
acknowledging that which is excellent or superior, because that's what this is referring to, that which is superior. And so Paul gives us a personal demonstration as he explains to those who are reading this epistle in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, or yes, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency. Here it is again, this word excellency, as it is excellent. You, the word is excellent in, in the first chapter. Here he says the excellency in this third chapter of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, which means that the knowledge of Christ is superior, the excellency, the superiority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul goes on to say, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And so here again, Paul is explaining that all things are inferior to knowing Christ. And when he makes this statement of knowing Christ or the knowledge of Christ, he again is not simply stating that of the new birth, but he's talking about knowing Christ since the new birth, in the new birth, and continuing to mature in the knowledge of the truth and the depths and riches of who Jesus truly is. As Scripture reveals him to be as it unfolds. And so we see here Paul is saying that his desire for this Philippian church, for these believers, is that they seek after, follow after, pursue after those things which are excellent, those things which are proven to be excellent. And again, one among the highest of things excellent is knowing Christ. This is superior to all other things that one may know. As Paul says, I count all things but refuse. I count all things but loss. Things I once thought were important, now I understand have no value in comparison to the great value of knowing Jesus and continuing to know him. Within verses 3 through 11, Paul explained the importance of the fellowship of, in chapter 1 of the Philippians. The, fellowship, the importance of the fellowship of the gospel within the church. And through the fellowship of the gospel, we have seen that God is first providing unity in his church through the fellowship of the gospel, verse 7. He is producing godly affection within his church through the fellowship of the gospel, in verse 8. God is cultivating spiritual growth in his church through the fellowship of the gospel, verses 9 and 10. And God is producing spiritual fruit in his church through the fellowship of the gospel, as he records in verse 11. Paul continued by explaining the importance of the furtherance of the gospel, which we continue within our study this morning. In verse 12, he says, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the, unto the furtherance of the gospel. And the fellowship shared in the gospel, as I've mentioned to you many times, will always result in the furtherance, and the word furtherance here means progress, so in the progress of the gospel. Last week we uh, examined as well Philippians 1, 15 through 18, leading us up to verse 19 this morning. And Paul says in verse 15 of Philippians 1, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul uses this portion of the epistle to contrast the differences which exist between those who further the gospel with pure motive and those who further the gospel with impure motives. And again, I don't want to spend time here very much at all in this statement, but you need to understand this if you don't understand it already, that when Paul says, I rejoice that Christ has preached, 
He is not talking about another version of Jesus, your own version of Jesus. He's not talking about a perversion of the gospel. He's not saying if somebody name drops Jesus, then I'm happy and I rejoice. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the motives may be impure, but as long as the message is pure, I then rejoice. But as soon as the message is no longer pure, there is no rejoicing. But God even says, or Paul says in Galatians, let that man be accursed that would preach another gospel, which is not a a perversion of the true gospel. So Paul is not saying, you preach your version of the gospel and we'll just come alongside you and rejoice in that. Not at all. Paul is saying, if you pervert the gospel, then you're cursed and let him be cursed. But if someone preaches the true, genuine gospel of Jesus Christ in its purity, even if their motives are impure for doing so, I rejoice, Paul says. And Paul explains, even at his own expense, he would rejoice if the purity of the gospel were proclaimed. In verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. Notice it's the same Jesus Paul is preaching. It's the same message is unchanged, but yet it's the motives behind why they do this. Paul has three different motives behind those who preach Christ in this verse. First, he says envy. There are those who preach Christ out of jealousy, most likely towards Paul because of their presumption that Paul had an advantage over them. Then there's those who preach Christ of strife producing a conflict out of a sense of rivalry of which they felt a need to compete with Paul. Paul's reception or Paul's notoriety as an apostle was obviously part of the motive for these individuals. Then he says, there are those who preach Christ of goodwill. And that means there were some who had a desire to be pleasing to God and to prove a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in word, but also in deed. Then verse 16, Paul goes on, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Paul states that these same ones preach Christ first out of contention. There are those who preach Christ for selfish reasons. The message is clear, but the motive is to promote self and not the progress of the gospel. I mentioned to you in in John's third epistle in verses 9 and 10, you find a gentleman by the name of Diotrephes, who is an example of one who is preaching Christ for selfish reasons. He forbade John, the, the beloved, to come into the church. He forbade others to come into the church. And the scripture says the reason is because he loved to have the preeminence. So he preached Christ, but he did so out of very selfish motive and selfish reasons that he might promote himself. Then he says, not sincerely. The motives of these individuals were not pure and sincere as they proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Again, that does not mean they were not sincere in what they were doing. They were sincerely uh, preaching Christ uh, with the intent to cause Paul problems, but they were not sincere in the gospel itself. Their motives were not pure. Then Paul says others to add affliction. These are those who preach Christ with the sole intent, impure motive, and underlying agenda to to cause Paul misery while imprisoned. Now, while there were those who simply wanted to incite Paul to jealousy, Paul understood that Christ and his gospel was not hindered by his imprisonment, but was furthered by his bonds. Again, in verse 12, we read, But I would ye understand, should understand, brethren, to the Philippians, that the things which happened unto me, specifically the imprisonment. Paul is in prison. One of the four prison epistles is the epistle of Philippians. So Paul is in literal chains or bonds at this time. He is not free. He's not able to go preach as he would desire to, though I, I promise you he's still preaching the gospel. He is still ministering. He's writing a letter from prison to the church at Philippi. 
And so we know that Paul is still faithful in the ministry, but yet he's not free as he would desire to be to be able to go and preach the gospel as he would so choose to do if he were free to do so. But yet Paul comes to this conclusion in verse 12 again, but I should ye under, I, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance or the progress of the gospel. Then verse 17, but the other of love, he says, they preach Christ of contention, envy, strife, so on. He says, but then there's those who preach Christ of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. And the verb set here means lie, set, and place. So Paul is explaining that he had been placed in this very situation for the purpose of defending the gospel. The word defense is translated from the Greek word apologia, and a simple definition of the term apologetics is the practice of defending the faith. So Paul was prepared, he was appointed by God to defend the faith. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Not only that I am intent on doing this, but God has placed me as he has where I am in all of these circumstances that I might defend the gospel, that I might defend the faith. Then we come to verse 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I told you last week, the noun pretense means pretext. And a pretext is a cloak hiding the true intent or reason for an action. So Paul is saying, whether Christ is preached in pretense, not that the gospel is pure. He's saying, but even if they are hiding behind a cloak as to why they are declaring Christ, if Christ is genuinely preached, then I rejoice, Paul says, even at my own expense. Because remember, they are attacking Paul in this which is really they're attacking Christ, the faith, and the gospel, even in declaring the gospel, the very spirit of the gospel is being attacked as they are coming against Paul. But Paul says, nonetheless, I rejoice when the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. So Paul says, I am thankful. I rejoice, even if there's a pretext to, as to why Jesus is being preached. So our text this morning, as we continue just two verses, 19 and 20, is a continuation of Paul's explanation of the importance and the necessity of the furtherance of the gospel at all costs. In other words, in Paul's explanation of things that are superior, in contrast to those things which are inferior, as he explains in chapter 3 specifically, Paul explains some truths which demand our attention regarding the fellowship and the furtherance of the gospel. And remember, we really cannot separate these two. Paul says to the Philippians, that he rejoiced because of their fellowship and continued fellowship in the gospel. And because of that, the gospel is now furthered. Again, Paul's bonds were used by God for the progress of the gospel, and those who otherwise would have potentially been afraid to speak in the name of Christ because Paul's in prison, God gave them boldness because of their fellowship in the gospel to continue to declare the gospel. And we've seen passages in Acts where that is true where despite the persecution, or might we even say because of the persecution, God so worked in that the word of God prevailed, the word of God increased, the word of God grew, and on and on we're told in the book of Acts. So we first of all see in verses 19 and 20, I want to point something out here that's of tremendous significance, and that is Paul's confidence. Look at verses 19 and 20 again with me. For I know, Paul says, that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, 
but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now, within these two verses, Paul expressed that in which he had confidence. There are three different words used in these two verses which imply or infer confidence. They are these three words. First, he says in verse 19, for I know. That's cognitive understanding, but that is a reason for Paul to say, I am confident from that which I do understand. Then the word hope. The word hope is the Greek word translated, it's the Greek word elpis, which is translated into hope. And it is a noun, not a verb, and it means confident expectation. It is confidence. And then there is boldness, which is used when Paul says, I shall be, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, in verse 20, as always, so now will also Christ shall be magnified in my body. So the word boldness here implies or infers also confidence. Paul is saying uh, that with all confidence, as always, with all boldness, he's not simply saying I have boldness in the sense that I'm not afraid. He's saying I'm confident of this truth. I know this to be so. So Paul's confidence was that ultimately in God's faithfulness to further or progress the gospel. This is, Paul says, I am confident the gospel will continue. I am confident the gospel will not be hindered. I am confident that no matter what happens to me, whether life or death, the gospel goes forward. God is going to complete this work. See, Paul was able to say the things he said and live the way he lived, as we've seen in Corinthians, because Paul had an eternal perspective. And he understood that the work in which he was involved was far greater and larger than was he. This was much more important than himself. And Paul recognized that. So what was Paul confident in? Well, first of all, we see Paul was confident in salvation. Now, the word salvation here literally means deliverance. And Paul is not merely saying, I'm confident that I am born. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul's statement, I know, again, infers that one has knowledge about or knowledge of. And the word salvation used by Paul in Philippians 1.19, again, means deliverance. And the question could be asked, how did Paul have knowledge that all these things would result in his deliverance? And in this answer, we, we, the word know we see is translated again from the same Greek word, which is translated into the same English word, no, which we find in Paul's writing to the Romans. In Romans 8, 28, you know this verse very well. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. While one may view this text as though Paul is declaring that he had some supernatural understanding that all of these things would all work out to benefit his physical existence, this is not the basis of Paul's statement at all. Both passages in Romans, Romans 8.28, and Philippians 1.19, both having been written by Paul, refer to the same truth. Paul is not claiming confidence that things will work out as he would desire in a physical manner, but rather he, that he is confident that all things will work according to God's purpose and according to God's plan, as Paul clearly stated in Romans 8.28 and would further declare in the following verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul's confidence of his deliverance was founded upon two spiritual factors. Notice this with me. Let's go back to verse 19 again. For I know... 
He's saying, I'm cognitively aware. I have understanding and knowledge of this. That this, these bonds and those who preach Christ, even of contention, envy, and strife, all the attacks against me, everything that's coming against me, he says, I know that this, these things shall turn to my salvation, to my deliverance. But then he lists two spiritual factors upon which he was confident. First is the prayer of the church. Notice what he says, through your prayer. I've often explained that in modern-day Christendom, prayer has been greatly misunderstood by many. Paul's confidence in the prayer of the church was not that their prayer would change God's purpose or mind, which would also mean that Paul was not expecting the course of his life to take a turn for the better because of other, the, the fact that others prayed for him. Rather, Paul was confident that through prayer, both he and the church would be confident that God's will was being accomplished and also that they would be comforted as God's purpose was fulfilled. Notice what he says here again. Look back at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But go back to verse 12. And this is key here to verse 19. Notice what Paul says. But I would ye should understand, brethren. Paul already understood this. Paul is confident in this. But he says, I would that you be able to understand this. And then he comes to verse 19 and notice what he says. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. He's saying, I know this is going to be my deliverance, and God is going to use this means through prayer of the saints, of the believers. But it's not that Paul is expecting circumstances to change by the prayer, but God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in and through uh, him working through saints as he brings them to the understanding that all of these things are for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. He wanted the Philippians to know this as well. And he is explaining it here to them. Notice, Paul intimated this realization when stating that both in life or death, Christ would be magnified in his body. Look at verse 20. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So Paul's not saying, okay, I know absolutely without a questionable doubt that your prayer is going to change the mind of God and he let me set me free from prison. I'm going to be able to roam freely as I would desire and so choose to do and preach to whomever I may decide to preach to. No. Paul is saying, listen, this is my confidence. Christ will be magnified in my body. If it's by life, Christ will be magnified. If it's by death, Christ will be magnified. Paul is truly living life with an eternal perspective. Paul understood God's purpose and plan is going to be fulfilled. Although Paul did desire to be released from his bonds, obviously, he knew that whether he were to live or to die, Jesus would be exalted, and this was superior to any of his personal desires. Second factor we find here is the provision of Christ. He goes on to say, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he says, this shall work to my deliverance, my salvation, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The word supply means support. And the word supply implies provision of whatever is necessary to supply or support. So Paul had confidence that the Spirit of Jesus Christ was sufficient 
to supply all that was necessary to deliver him, whether by life or by death. If Paul were to be delivered by God some miraculous ways, as Peter was, remember when he was in prison and the angel came and opened the door and Peter walked out and showed up in the book of Acts knocking on the door? And they said, it's Peter. And they ran back in and came back and let him in because he had been in prison. And Paul's saying, look, if that's what God wants to do in my life to deliver me, I know that you are praying, which brings great comfort to Paul, no doubt. And I know that God will bring you under submission to his purpose and plan regardless of whether I live or die. And he says, if, if God wants to deliver me physically, I know that the Spirit of Christ is sufficient to do this. But if I am to die and God is to deliver me ultimately out of this bondage of this body of death in which I physically live and exist, then I know this too, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is sufficient for this eternal deliverance. So Paul says, whether life or death, it really makes no difference. I'm delivered all the same. And he says, I know this, Christ is sufficient. He knew that Jesus was sufficient to fulfill and accomplish that which God had purposed to do. Paul was confident that the prayers of the church would align them with God's purpose, and in doing so, he would be comforted, while the supplier provision of God's Spirit would be sufficient in fulfilling God's purpose and will in his life. So through the prayers of others, Paul was comforted and confident in God's will being accomplished. We underestimate and we misunderstand often prayer. And I don't want to spend very much time here, but let me just mention this. Again, prayer is not that God is over here and we're over here and we say, Oh God, please do this. And in your name, I, Jesus' name, I pray this. And God says, Okay, you know what? I think I'll come over and do what you want. No, prayer is that we're over here and God's over here and God has his purpose and plan already set. And yet we are saying, oh God, we really desire this. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. And God is not coming to do what I want him to do. God is changing me to begin to desire what he desires and what he's determined to do. But however, so you say, well, what's the use of prayer? That is the purpose and use of prayer. When I am not praying according to God's will, if I am truly submitted to him, God is bringing me in submission to his will. And what Paul is saying is through your prayers, he understood they would come to understand and be submissive to the Spirit of God and the purpose of God. And Paul was greatly comforted in knowing that others were praying the will of God. Not praying for his release, not praying that he would be set free, but that they were praying according to the purpose and plan of God, which brought great comfort to Paul. Paul also was confident that Christ would be exalted. Notice verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In this verse, Paul explains why he was confident. Paul explains that he was confident that he would not be put to shame due to his bonds. In other words, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and the gospel of Christ would never leave Paul ashamed. Romans 1.16, Paul also spoke to this when he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And remember, the book of Romans is the gospel explained. Paul is explaining the gospel in the book of Romans. And when we read Romans and we see Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
Paul is not merely saying, I'm not, a, I, I, I'm not afraid or scared and I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to speak Jesus' name, though that were true. What Paul is saying is that the gospel never leaves me ashamed. The gospel is the power of God, and the power of God works as God has determined the gospel to work according to that power. And I am never ashamed because of the gospel. It never leaves me ashamed. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the noun boldness in Philippians 1 means confidence. So Paul once again emphasizes confidence and explains that he is confident that Christ will be magnified in his body. Such a confidence can only be realized when one is submitted to the Lord and his purpose. Paul wrote of such submission to the, uh, to being submitted to the Lord and such, such submission unto the Lord in his epistle of Romans as well. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you know these verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service, reasonable is genuine, service is worship. Your genuine worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul's expectation and confidence, they were aligned with God's purpose and will. So Paul was confident that he would not be ashamed, but would, he would be bold, he would be confident because he was confident that God would be magnified in his life, whether by life or by death. So in this body, Paul says God will be, Christ will be magnified. If it's in life, then it's in life. Remember, Paul goes on to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here again is the confidence of Paul. He says that in the next verses here, actually verse 21. So he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying, I am confident that Christ is going to be magnified in this body whether I live or whether I die. One can only possess this attitude concerning life and death through submission to the Lord, as Paul further explains in Romans, in Romans 14, 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. I don't know how much more clearly Paul could have stated it. He's saying, look, your life is not what's important here. That Christ be magnified in your life, whether by death or life, is what is important here. You know, we, we say, I say, you say, we would love to be able to declare and say that we really believe in the preeminence of Jesus Christ and that Christ is our everything, and truly he is that. But we would like to claim that we acknowledge and recognize that. But might I say, much too often, I am afraid that we place great, in, uh, uh, great significance upon us, upon our lives, upon our desires, upon our wants, upon our goals, upon our ministries, upon our church. We place Way too much emphasis and significance, much too often, upon us. And Paul's saying, my life is not what is important here. Because Paul understood this. Here we are 2,000 years later, and guess what we're declaring? The same Jesus that Paul declared. And Paul is dead. Do you see the truth of what Paul is saying? I'm going to die, and if I die, that doesn't matter as long as Christ is magnified. And here we are 
centuries later, proclaiming the same Jesus, and Paul is dead. Paul's life is not what was significant. The message Paul proclaimed was significant and is significant, and that is Jesus Christ, and that Christ was magnified in Paul's body is what was significant, and that Christ is magnified in our body is what is significant, because let us be, rem- let us be reminded of this truth. And I know you all came for this encouraging word from the pastor this morning. Not only are you going to die, you are in the process of death right now. True story. Life is a continual process of death. Because whatever is alive is going to die. And so you are in the process of death. And in that process that we call life, we need to be aware that all of this is going to come to an end and possibly an abrupt end for us at some point in time. And what's important is not us, but what is important is Christ, the gospel of Christ, and that Christ be magnified in us, whether by life or by death. Paul says again, Romans 14, 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And if we are His, then why would we not desire Him to be magnified through us? The verb magnified is used in Philippians 1.20 when Paul said, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. It means exalt and glorify. So Paul is simply saying, oh, Whether I live or die, Christ is going to be exalted through my body. In life, he will be exalted and glorified. In death, he will be exalted and he will be glorified. And Paul is saying, that is all that matters. Paul is explaining in this text that his confidence is in that which is excellent. His confidence is in that which is superior. Paul knew that regardless of whatever happened to him, Whether he lived or whether he died, Jesus Christ would be exalted. Jesus Christ would be glorified in his life. This is what is excellent. This is what is superior to all other things. For it was through Paul's suffering and through Paul's salvation, whether in life or death, that Jesus was exalted. May you and I live in and with such confidence, as did Paul. May we submit ourselves to the person and the purpose of God so that we might pursue that which is excellent. May Christ be exalted in our bodies. May Christ be glorified in our bodies. May Christ be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. Because as we will see in the coming weeks, for to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Notice what Paul says, for to me. He didn't say that's necessarily true of you. For to me, to live. That's often misquoted. Many people quote that verse, for me to live is Christ. That's not what Paul says. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. My life is given over to him already. My life is his. For to me, to live is Christ. It's not for to me, to live is for me to pursue after my own desires and wants and gains and succeed. No, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain.
So my life here is His, and as long as I am in this life, He is ever with me, He is ever indwelling me, He will never leave me nor forsake me, and the moment I enter into eternity, I am now with Him forever. Look, that is a win-win. You want a win-win? Here's a win-win. As long as I breathe air in this life, as a follower, believer in Christ, one who's been born again, Jesus is ever with me. But the moment I step out into eternity, I am forever with him. And that is what Paul is conveying in this text. So may we live with and in such confidence as did Paul that whether we live or whether we die, we are confident. We have an eternal perspective, an eternal understanding, and that Christ is to be magnified in our bodies, and in life He will be magnified, in death He will be magnified, in life He will be glorified and exalted, in death He will be glorified and exalted, and that the gospel is unhindered even if we are limited in our ability, even though we are limited in our ability. The gospel is not limited at all. It continues to move on. It continues to progress. It continues to be declared. And the power of the gospel is unchanging.